Hey everybody, Matthew McConaughey here, talking green lights. You are listening to Trey Elling. Books on pod, green lights. Hey, the red and yellow ones eventually turn green, so can we all go out there today, tomorrow, and the day after that, creating and catching more of them for ourselves and others. In the meantime, and all times, let's just keep living. Hello, readers. Jim Gray is an Emmy Award-winning Hall of Fame sports broadcaster who's telling a story in the new book, Talking to Goats, The Moments You Remember and the Stories You Never Heard. Jim, thank you so much for the time today. You have obviously conducted tens of thousands of interviews in your life. Who was the first person you ever interviewed on camera, and how did that happen? Muhammad Ali. I was 18 years old. I was a sports intern, and they were converting from film to videotape, so all the film editors took the buyout, and the union moved aside, and all the videotape editors were very young, young men and women, who got an opportunity, and I was in my edit booth editing the Broncos with Red Miller show. He was getting ready for the draft or whatever we were doing on that show. It was 7 a.m. in the morning, 7.30, and in came running the assignment editor, a woman by the name of Sue Tooth. And she said, you know something about sports, right? And I said, well, yeah. She said, you were the sports intern. Muhammad Ali's two and a half hours early at the airport, run out and interview him. Well, I'd never done an interview before, let alone the most famous and popular man in the entire world. And so he was getting ready to fight the Sphinx. And then after that, he was going to fight an exhibition against the Denver Bronco by the name of Lyle Alzado. So I ran out and got to the airport and saw Ali and asked him a question. His first answer is, you're doing this interview? (laughs) And I said, yeah, and everybody laughed. Well, that took all the edge off of me. That just relaxed me, Trey, and made me feel at ease because he wasn't laughing at me. He was laughing, you know, and the gang was laughing because what he said was funny, and it just took all the nerves away. So about the third or fourth question, his response was, you sound like the local Howard Cosell, at which point I had never had a compliment that great in my life. You know, I loved watching Howard and Muhammad Ali and all those interviews and Monday Night Football and so forth. Anyway, came back. He gave me 45 minutes, came back, was editing myself out of the piece. They weren't going to put me on television. I was 18 years old. And, you know, I was on cloud nine, and it had been a fun experience. And the head of the bureau, the ABC station in Denver, the news director, Roger Ogden, walked in, and he said, let me see that tape. So he watched it 45 minutes, said, let me see that again. Watched it all again. He was mesmerized. Not with me. But with Ali, at the end of it, he said, this tape and you, I'm going to put it on the air. It's barely adequate. (laughs) So I tell everybody I've been barely adequate ever since. (laughs) I'd say it's a little bit better than that. It was interesting to read, though, that you had actually established a friendship with Muhammad Ali over time. As a matter of fact, in 1980, when you were a senior in college at Colorado, you took a road trip with Ali before his fight with Larry Holmes from Atlanta to Columbia, South Carolina. What happened when y'all stopped for gas near the Georgia-South Carolina state line? Well, we had gotten the gas, and it was a really heavily wooded area, like that part of the country is, a lot of beautiful trees and so forth. And we were getting back onto the road from the gas station, and hard to guess how far it was, five blocks away, whatever. It's just off in the yonder down in one of the flat areas that had been cleared, there were a bunch of kids playing basketball. And Ali said, let's go over there. So we got over there, and they were all African-American kids playing shirts and skins and pretty young kids. Hard to say exactly what they were, probably, you know, 11 to 15, 16, running up and down. And Ali got away. We were in this big Cadillac. It was more like a huge boat or a submarine. Gets out of the car. He says, watch this, Jim Gray. And 
camera got out and they started filming and the ball rolled over to Ali. They didn't even really notice at first. They just kept playing, just like kids, you know. Car pulls up, it's on a dirt court, and they've nailed a peach basket against a tree, okay? <laughs> that was the basket. And ball rolls over, Ali picks it up. And one of the kids runs over just to get the ball, sees who it is, and his eyes, like those cartoons, are so wide open, and he touches him. And he says, Ali? Are you Muhammad Ali? And Ali smiled. Kid turned around, it's Ali! It's Ali! Well, they all came over. He patted each of them on the head. He played basketball with them. He started doing magic tricks. 15 kids turned into 30, turned into 80, turned into the whole town, started coming out of these woods. Like, where were these people living? You couldn't even see a home or a structure. I mean, you could see the gas station and whatever the mini-mart was. But he had no idea how this word spread. But it was unbelievable. And then he stayed there for 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And we got back into the car, and it's hard to drive off because there were so many people, you know, just trying to touch him. And they were on the hood of the car, and we finally got out of there and got back in the car. And said, so what did you think of that? And it was just amazing. It was just the magnetism, the gregarious nature of him, the friendly nature. He wanted to be around people, loved kids, always had a good time and loved who he was, you know, and he was great at it. He had tremendous self-awareness and always gave the people what they wanted one of many great experiences that I had with him. And you share a lot of those stories in the new book, Talking to Goats. People may not realize this, but a lot of the individuals that you've interviewed throughout your career, you established friendships with, and that included former Raiders owner Al Davis. Al once asked you what you wanted in life before explaining that there are five things worth going after. What were those five things, and which was the most important to Al? He came out, and we were at dinner, and I was with my wife, Fran, and I regularly would be with Al, and he was a terrific genius of a guy, a wise, wise man who had a lot of experiences and obviously knew football inside and out at all levels. And when I were at dinner, and he just said to me, he said, what do you want in life? And I said, well, what do you mean by that, Al? He said, well, there's only five things. And I said, hmm, what are they? He said, money, fame, glory, power or love. And I said, huh, never thought about that. He said, you better think about it in a hurry and pick one, otherwise you'll end up with none of them. Hmm. And I said, well, wow, okay, well, what is it for you, Al? And he said, that's easy, Jimmy. Power. And I said, oh, why? He said, because if I had power, I'll have money. If I had power, I'll have been famous. If I have power, I will probably have achieved something glorious, and I really don't care much about love. And I said, wow, that's interesting. Huh. And I just never forgot that, and that's what he had achieved in his life and was a powerful guy, was a head coach, was an owner, was a commissioner, won three titles, took on the NFL when he moved his franchise and beat them in court. And so he achieved his dreams and had his goals, and his philosophy was as he stated. And what a guy. Just learned so much from Al and I'm grateful to uh, him and to his wife, Carol, and to Mark Davis to this day. Which of those five pursuits is the most important to you? I would say that I haven't lived my life in that fashion, Hmm. thinking about any of those. Hmm. I love my wife. I love my mom. And my dad was my best friend. So I care about people. I've had relationships in my life. I've never had any power. The only thing that's ever listened to me was my dog and that wasn't always. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, 
fame, I don't know. I'm on television, but I wasn't pursuing that. Glory, I didn't win any wars or any Super Bowls or anything of that nature. And money, I've made a decent living. But I can't sit here and tell you, Trey, that that has ever been my goal, but it sure was fascinating to hear it. And then to try and see when you look at other people and make that evaluation for them. No doubt about that. Al also had a very interesting spin on the Golden Rule. People can go read the book to find out about that one. You were also close friends with John Madden, so much so, in fact, that you stayed at his New York City apartment right across from Central Park when you worked for NBC in 1987. How did you end up talking to Richard Nixon during this stay, and what was Madden's reaction when you originally told him this story about getting to meet with Nixon? (laughs) Well, I just walked out of the apartment one day, and Madden was inside. I was going down to get some pizza down at Ray's Pizza, and it was at the other corner, and a guy drove up in a car, and he said, hey, are you Jim Gray? And I said, yeah, I am, and I waved, and it was a black sedan with tinted windows and really dark on the inside and dark on the outside. And I said, yeah, I am. Nice to see you, and I just kept walking. It's kind of like, you know, it was friendly, but just kept moving. The tinted windows, there was nothing to walk over to see, so I just kept moving. Well, the guy went around the block and came back, and he <laughs> Well, down the window again, he said, hey, Jim Gray. And I said, yeah, hi. And he said, come on over here. And he said, you're Jim Gray. I said, yeah, we kind of established that. <laughs> and I kind of waved and smiled. President Nixon, Richard Nixon wants to talk to you. And the back window rolled down, and it was Richard Nixon. Wow. So he says, come on, get into the car and come talk to me. So I got in the car, talked to Richard Nixon for about 45 minutes. This guy knew everything about sports. He was telling me statistics about Pee Wee Reese and all-Star Games and Jackie Robinson's first All-Star Game and the New York Football Giants. and It was just astonishing. The guy was Siri before Siri and Google before Google. I mean, the amount of information and data that he had in his head off the top of his head for a totally innocuous conversation with a sportscaster was just unfathomable. Anyway, all went great. I got out of there and I said, wow, Richard Nixon, guy who destroyed our faith in government, what a guy. I mean, unbelievable sportsman, and what knowledge, and wow, I was just so impressed. And I was just totally enamored with what had just happened. So I walk into the apartment, I say, Madden, you're not going to believe this. I called him Madden, he called me Gray. That's just what it was. I said, Madden, you're not going to believe this. He said, what happened? I told him. I told him the whole thing, and he got it. I can't say it on the air what he said. He said, don't ever ask me again. I've heard everybody's BS. Is not exactly how he said it from Sistrunk to Matusak, and don't S. Madden. And he walked out. I'm thinking, wow, okay, well, I don't know why he wouldn't believe it, but that's what happened. About a year later, he comes into the apartment, and he didn't use the apartment much. We weren't living together. He let me live in his apartment, and he would travel around by bus and go to the games. But when he had an East Coast game, he'd stay in his own place there. And so anyway, he came walking in, and he said, I'm sorry, I called you an S a year ago. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm sorry, I should have never done that. And I said, why? He said, well, just spent an hour in the car on 72nd with Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> Did you tell him, don't shit gray? No, no, I'm just glad he didn't think I was a, well, you use that word, I won't.
<laughs> read the book, Talking to Goats. It's in the book if you want to read the actual quote. That's right. And you uh, also expand on your interview with Pete Rose before Game 2 of the 1999 World Series. It's, of course, an infamous moment in the history of sports broadcasting, much less your career. It was Rose's first time in a stadium since being banned from the game for gambling as part of the MasterCard All-Century team. I'd forgotten the level of fallout you experienced from that, including Chad Curtis hitting a game-winning homer for the Yankees in Game 3 and embarrassing you by refusing to answer your question in the post-game interview. One guy who stood by your side throughout this, though, was Dick Ebersol, and the Curtis fiasco was the final straw for him. What ensued with him and then George Steinbrenner later that night? Well, Dick was the corporate model of how to treat an employee who was under siege and stress. And he stood by me, and he was just incredible in his support for the interview and the aftermath that was coming from, you know, all sides coming from, uh, obviously, the fans, the media, advertisers, you know, all corners, players, the organization, and so forth. And always be grateful for how Dick just stood up for me and the things that he said and the actions that he took. So after Chad Curtis blew me off, the Yankees went up 3-0. And, you know, it had come to the point where it was affecting my ability to do the job because if that, in fact, was the team that was boycotting me, you know, it's hard to be covering the Yankees but not have access to the Yankees if you're broadcasting the World Series in the position that I was as a reporter and in their dugout, the side of their dugout. So Bud Selig was talking to Dick after the game, and I walked up, and they were in a conversation and Bud asked me to excuse myself, and Dick said, no, he can hear this, it's about him. And essentially, Bud said, why not have Hannah Storm present the trophy tomorrow night, because Hannah was the pregame show host. And Dick said, I'll decide on my lineup, Jim's going to present that trophy, and if there's any behavior out of the Yankees that's in that fashion again tomorrow night, you can present that trophy in spring training. We'll go to black and play cartoons, and good luck to you all. So... I just never forgot how he was a gentleman, but how forceful he was in pushing back by not allowing the commissioner in that league to tell him how he was going to produce his broadcast. And went back to the hotel that night. We stayed at the Regency Hotel in New York City, and I drove back to the hotel with Bob Costas in the car, got out of the car, went upstairs. There was the New York City policeman and some FBI agents, former agents and so forth, who had helped us at the stadium so that I wouldn't have any problems with any of the fans or any of the people who had sent in the threatening phone calls and so forth and so on. And so I went, got undressed and was getting ready for bed and it was like one fifteen, one thirty in the morning and the door knocked and I thought it was the guy who was sitting outside, maybe wanted something to eat or use the restroom anyway. So I just opened the door and it was George Steinbrenner with the guy who was sitting out there. <laughs> And he was in his coat and tie and overcoat and the whole thing. He said, can I come in? And I said, sure, come on in. And he said, first of all, I want to tell you, Jim, there was nothing wrong with that interview. Okay, I'm fine with that interview. Second of all, I'm not fine with what Chad Curtis did tonight. He does not represent me, and he does not represent the Yankee organization. You are always welcome at Yankee Stadium, and you will always be treated with courtesy and respect, and that won't happen again. And then he said, and this... I'm going to tell you, and Mr. Steinbrenner, George, was terrific to me all the time, just a terrific guy, and he was a superstitious man. He said, I don't want to get ahead of myself. However, if we're so fortunate enough to win that trophy tomorrow night or in this series, 
don't worry. I'll stand there the entire time with you on the podium, and there won't be one Yankee who gets out of line or doesn't treat you well. And by golly, the next night they won, did the trophy presentation with the commissioner and George Steinbrenner. Randy Levine was up there, Joe Torrey and so forth. George stood there the whole time. And all those guys who were pro Pete Rose, he kept them off the podium. He didn't let Chad Curtis come up there. Paul O'Neill didn't come get on television during that time and the others who were antagonized by the interview. And Joe Torrey was a perfect gentleman, as was Mariano Rivera, as was Derek Jeter, and can't remember who else, maybe Bernie Williams. But nobody from the Yankees got out of line, and they were all very, very courteous and very good, and George stood there and made sure there wasn't a problem. George is a man of his word. You're also friends with Jack Nicholson. He's even responsible for your nickname, Scratchy. You guys spoke frequently after Lakers games and also occasionally during huge sports moments, like after the Pete Rose interview and Tiger's first Masters win and uh, other examples like that. What's the most profound conversation you ever had with your sage buddy, Jack? There's so many of them I couldn't list them all in the book or go through them all here or tray on the air. He's a brilliant man, and he's incredible knowledge and wherewithal. He's given me a lot of good advice over the years and a lot of good counsel, and he's been great to be around. And, you know, most of the time that we've had have just been fun times, golfing and watching sporting events or talking about sporting events. I've never been to his place of work while he's been acting or in his trailer or anything of that nature. So we've just purely had a social relationship based around sports. He's a tremendous sports fan. He's a huge 49ers fan. He's a crazy Yankees fan, and he's an obsessive Lakers fan. He just loves it. And he's dedicated himself to being at all of the Laker games, you know, at least up until the last year or two, where it's, you know, obviously become more problematic. They didn't have a team that was worth watching after Kobe left, and they had fallen off the map here. And now with LeBron back, he had started to come back. And then unfortunately, COVID kicked in for the NBA and for the nation. And so uh, he watches the games now mainly on television. How'd you end up meeting Nelson Mandela? And what story did he share with you about conjugal visits? That's not for the radio. That's for the book. Fair enough. (laughs) I hate to to do that to you, but You're going in areas where you're asking me to throw out all this colorful language and stuff that I think looks different in print than it does coming out of people's mouths. That's totally fine. You discuss not holding Marion Jones' feet to the fire when interviewing her after she won gold at the 2000 Summer Olympics, which happened soon after her husband was ousted from the Games for testing positive for steroids. Your bosses told you not to, and you respected their decision. Even though she was later found guilty of and imprisoned for PED usage, you say that interview was not among your great career regrets. So what is your biggest career regret? Well, no, I did regret it, but I don't live with the regret. In other words, I lamented it at the time and thought we should be asking, particularly since Trey C.J. Hunter, her husband, had tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs and was not allowed to participate in the games because of that. So for us not to be able to ask her in advance, was she aware of her husband's activities? Was she partaking in any of this? Not that she was going to admit any of this, obviously, but at least we would have been on the record, right? So it wasn't going to be some Perry Mason moment here where all of a sudden she's getting ready to be the fastest woman in the world and go win that medal, and she's either going to have won it or before the race admit that she was doing something wrong, right? So that wasn't going to happen. But the fact that we just didn't do it, the fact that 
my boss at the time, same boss, Dick Ebersol, just felt that this was not the way to go about such a glamorous sport and such a glamorous person who was terrifically talented in her sport that we weren't trying to send viewers away. We were trying to attract viewers. So unless she tested positive, don't make her guilty by association and let her have her day, which was not an unfair assessment. But just as a reporter in my position, wished I could have asked the question, but nobody does anything alone in television. And just like Dick Ebersol didn't leave me alone, he stood by my side with Pete Rose. I accepted his judgment as being what was best for the network. So that's what we did. You interviewed Ray Charles. What were the circumstances surrounding this chat? And does anything stick out to you about your time together with Ray Charles? He was terrific. And it was after 9-11 when his song was being played just about everywhere all the time, which was America the Beautiful. And the rendition that he sang for that, America the Beautiful, became heightened during that tragic time and started being played in the seventh inning of baseball games and across the airwaves of radio stations repeatedly. And everywhere you turn, that rendition became, for that period of time, a song of great solace and of patriotism and of grieving. And the way that he did it just resonated with everyone because it's so melodic and so beautiful and just touches a place that it's hard to reach. And you got to hear him perform that live and in person. Yes. Well, he did it for our cameras, and then we went to a place where he sang it in front of President Clinton, who had just left office. Obviously, President Bush, George W. Bush, was in office then. But So I did that interview, and it was so interesting to hear his responses and so interesting to be able to hear what it was that in his mind's eye, obviously being blind, how he imagined what this was like and the response to his song at this point in American life and history. And I asked him a question, Trey, regarding was this possibly the one time in his life where it was best that he wasn't able to see? Hmm. And his response was, you know, that's a great question. And I guess he said it is, because why would I want to see all of this devastation of these huge buildings and all of this pain of all of the loss of life and all of the families and everybody had been hurt? And he was a special man and a great guy. And I feel real good that I was able to spend that time with him and get to know him on those couple of days that we shot this feature. And finally, Jim, speaking of special guys, your dad, Jerry Gray, sounds like an incredible guy and an important figure in your life. Y'all established an annual tradition at the Masters where he would join you in Augusta, keeping score during your broadcasts, with you guys hanging out in the downtime. What was the greatest lesson that your dad taught you before his death in late 2013 or early 2014? The greatest lesson that he taught me was his whole life of how to live a life of helping others, of setting an example of being more to it than yourself, of integrity and principle matters, and here's why they matter. If you told my dad something and you said, don't repeat it, that one in the lockbox, okay, it could not be penetrated any way, shape, or form, no matter how many questions you asked, how many places you went after it. And so it was just a great, great lesson to be able to see how many friends and contacts and acquaintances and clients and things that he was able to do and 
go about it in the right way and go about it in a way where, you know, he genuinely helped others, perfect strangers, and his friends. It was just, he was just available, and he was just always there to try and make somebody else's life better. And it's a wonderful example, a very hard way to live, because you can never really fill those shoes. And my brother's, my mother's still alive, and I'm grateful that I have her, because when I see her, I can feel him. And we spent one week a year together, basically, after I moved around several times for broadcasting, and that was at the Masters. And that's why that event became so important to me, not only the greatness of the players playing there and the incredibly pristine and beautiful national park that Augusta National is, but that time with my dad where we did everything, you know, eat all of our meals together, stay in the same house, walk the course, he came up on the tower for all those 20-plus years, kept score for me. It was just a special time and one that I look back on so grateful that I had that time, also melancholy and sad that when I see that on TV, it brings back such a warm and fond place, but it also stings because you hurt that he's not here. Jim Gray is an Emmy Award-winning Hall of Fame sports broadcaster who's telling his story in the new book, Talking to Goats, The Moment You Remember and the Stories You Never Heard. Jim, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very entertaining book. Thank you, Trey. Thanks for your time, bud. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at BooksOnPod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.